Mark chapter 11, verse 12 through 21. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. The word of the Lord. Have you ever noticed that symbols are never just symbols? For instance, um, this is a picture of the January 6th riot at the Capitol last year. Now, obviously, many people have very intense feelings about this, but the intensity of our feelings is pointing to the power that symbols have in our lives. Because on the one hand, the capital is just a building, but on the other hand, we all know that it's way more than just a building. Symbols are never just symbols. And depending on what a particular symbol means to you, um, especially the, uh, the more powerful that symbol is in your life, if somebody attacks the symbol, it can feel like they're attacking you. And so uh, when that happens, we attack back. Why? It's because um, symbols represent things that are sacred to us. They represent things that give our lives meaning and significance. They give us a sense of self in this world. Symbols are never just symbols. But here's the question. What if this, the thing that that symbol represents, what if instead of giving us um, meaning and significance and a real sense of self, what if instead that, that, symbol, that thing the symbol represents is actually destroying us? And of course, we don't realize it because if we did realize it, we'd probably try to change it, right? Can we say that again? If we did realize that something was destroying us, we might actually try to do something about that. So here's the real question. What would have to happen in your life in order to help you realize that, that something in your life was actually destroying you? Sometimes the most loving thing that someone could do would be to expose the true nature of the thing that's destroying you, to unmask it. If that were to happen, that would feel traumatic, wouldn't it? It, it would feel like they're attacking you, right? 
Friends, that is exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage that we just read. We're in a series in which we're looking at strange encounters with Jesus, and this story we just read really is strange. I mean, on the one hand, the the bit in the middle where Jesus is turning over the tables in the temple, we think we know what's going on there. Jesus is fighting against injustice and oppression, but this bit about where he uh, curses the fig tree, a lot of people have, have really said, that just seems so out of character for Jesus. It feels so destructive. What's going on with that? You know, um, the stories of the temple and the tree, really, they go together. And when you put both of those stories together, it's showing us a deeper message. Jesus is unmasking the true nature of the thing that's destroying us. What is that? Well, Let's find out by seeing three things in this passage this morning. We're going to see the problem of the temple, the purpose of the temple, and lastly, the parable of the tree, okay? The problem of the temple, the purpose of the temple, and the parable of the tree. So let's start by looking at the problem of the temple, and let's just dive in by taking a look at what is Jesus doing at the temple here? It says, he entered the temple courts, and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, here's what's going on. The temple was divided into different sections. In fact, here's a a picture of the temple. Um, Notice that in the very center of the temple, there's this, this cube right there. The, the, the closer you got to the center of the temple, the closer you got to God, because this cube right there is called the Holy of Holies, and that was where the presence of God was. And the only person that could go in there was the high priest, and only he could go in, and it was only once a year on Yom Kippur, and he would bring a sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the people. But the next nearest section was this section right here. It was called the Court of Israel. Um, Only circumcised Jewish males could go in there. The next nearest section right here was called the Court of the Women. And then this big open area all the way around here was called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles were non-Jewish people, and they were not allowed to go anywhere near, in, near inside the temple. And in fact, there was a wall around the outside here, and at regular intervals in the wall, they had signs. Here's a picture of one. Um, if you could read it, you'd realize what it says is, no foreigners, anyone apprehended will only have their, themselves to blame for their ensuing death. How's that for a welcome? So here are all these Gentiles, and here's the thing. In order to come to worship, you you had to bring a sacrifice. So at the temple, they had vendors there who would exchange money and sell animals. It was very noisy and stinky and hectic and crowded and chaotic. I mean, that's what was going on. Now, where do you suppose they set up this whole operation? In the court of the Gentiles. It was utter chaos. In fact, um, the trading floor at Wall Street would be a picture of serenity compared to this scene in the temple courts. So here's all of these Gentiles, and not only are they not allowed any further into the temple, but the only place they are allowed to go um, is, is, is utter chaos. And this is where they're supposed to find God? 
Are you starting to see maybe why Jesus is so upset? Why Jesus is turning over tables and chasing people out? In fact, Jesus tells us explicitly why he's so upset. He says, is it not written, my house, that's God's house, will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now that phrase, a house of prayer for all nations, is a direct quote from the prophet Isaiah chapter 56. Friends, here's the point. From the very beginning, all throughout the biblical storyline, God is never just the God of the Jews. God's heart, God's desire, God's plan is that from the very beginning of the Bible, God has always wanted to be God of all of the nations, God of all of the peoples. God's plan from day one has always been to love and to include and to welcome all peoples, all nations into his presence. In fact, this vision goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. So for instance, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God creates the world, and he, he, in the middle of the creation, he puts the Garden of Eden. Now, I just showed you a picture of the temple grounds, and remember that cube that was called the Holy of Holies? That's the presence of God. That's where God dwells. The Holy of Holies was like a renewed Garden of Eden. Because in, in the creation, in the Garden of Eden, that was the original Holy of Holies. That was the place of God's presence. But then as you go through the story, Genesis 3, the first human beings rebel against God, and as a result, they are exiled out of the Garden of Eden, away from the presence of God. And then in chapters 4 through 11, you see the whole world starts falling apart. Wars, division, hostility, violence, racism, everything is falling apart. So what does God do about all of this? In Genesis chapter 12, one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible, God calls Abraham. Have you ever heard of Abraham? Who was Abraham? God called Abraham to be the father of the nation of Israel. But why? What's, what's the purpose of Israel? God told Abraham in Genesis 12, Abraham, in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. All of the families. All of the nations blessed, welcomed back into the presence of God, welcomed back into the love of God. That's the purpose of Israel. That's the whole reason for which they exist. Did you, maybe you've heard this, that Israel, they're called the chosen people. Have you ever heard that? Why is Israel called the chosen people? Does that mean that they're chosen to be set up on a pedestal, separate from everybody else, superior to everybody else? No. The reason they're called the chosen people is because they're chosen for a mission to be a light to the nations, to welcome all the nations back into the presence of God. That's the whole reason for their existence. And that's why Jesus is so upset. Because they have repudiated their whole reason for existence. Instead of welcoming all the nations in, they're shutting all the nations out. That's what was going on with Israel. And by the way, it's important to understand that um, Jesus' um, demonstration, his little protest in the temple, it, it really was located to one small section of the court of the Gentiles. Remember the picture, it's a huge area. The, the, he wasn't shutting the whole system down, in other words. It was a symbolic action, but symbols are never just symbols. Jesus was exposing and unmasking the failure of the temple to be what it was intended to be, a, a way of welcoming all of the nations back into the presence of God. Now, before we move on, um, we hear this 
and we like it, right? Because in our culture, we value things like diversity and inclusion. But we're starting to see that all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, those priorities were written into the very storyline of the Bible. In fact, the very reason we value those things is precisely because of the influence of the Bible in our culture over the last 2,000 years. So especially if you're exploring maybe what it might mean to follow Jesus, or maybe you grew up in church and you're disillusioned, disillusioned with the church, because of the presence of things like hypocrisy and exploitation and oppression and abuse and racism in the church. It's very easy to be disillusioned with it or to say, I don't know if I want to follow that. But are you beginning to see that from the very beginning, um, those things were not a part of the Bible? In fact, embracing Christianity and following Jesus doesn't mean embracing those things. It means rejecting those things because here we see Jesus rejecting them. In fact, um, you know, this weekend we're celebrating Martin Luther King's birthday, as we do every year at this time. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King is writing to Christian leaders who were criticizing him for his efforts at racial justice. Can you imagine how that would have felt for him? I mean, the very people that should have been supporting him and joining him were attacking him. If anybody had a good reason to be disillusioned with the church, <laughs> it was Martin Luther King. And yet when he wrote to those Christian leaders, what did he say? You know what? Forget about Christianity. Forget about the church. No. In fact, he said the opposite. He basically told them, look, you need to get more committed to Christianity. You need to get more invested in Christianity. Martin Luther King was simply following Jesus in this. The problem of the temple is that, that Israel and the temple had, had failed to be the light to the nations. That was their mission. That was their purpose. And they were failing in their purpose to bring all the nations back into the presence of God. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen the problem of the temple. But next, we need to look at the purpose of the temple. Because right here, if this is all we're looking at, it would be easy to think, okay, here's Jesus and he sees the problem with the temple. Religious leaders are excluding Gentiles. So Jesus puts on his Gentile Lives Matter t-shirt, and he stages a protest. And the big message here is that we're supposed to stand up against injustice and oppression, right? And at one level, the answer is absolutely we're supposed to do those things. But there's also a much deeper message going on here. Jesus is unmasking that something. And, and, and if we don't see it and deal with it, then that thing will destroy us even more than things like injustice and oppression. What is that thing that's destroying us? Well, remember what we just saw. Israel had failed in its mission to be a light to the nations. And we could say, oh man, those poor oppressed Gentiles. But think about this with me. Who are these poor oppressed Gentiles? Many of them are Romans. And if you know about the history at that time, Rome, the Roman Empire, was actively engaged in a political military occupation of Jerusalem at this time. That means that Israel, including the religious leaders, they were living under oppression at this time. They were the real oppressed ones. So it's not hard to imagine why the religious leaders might not have had warm fuzzies towards the Gentiles right now. 
And so throughout the biblical storyline, there was this promise, and they were hanging on to this promise, that one day God was going to send a king, a Messiah, who was going to rescue them from all of their enemies and who would bring about a new world, a new creation in which there's no more war, violence, poverty, suffering, hunger, sickness, or even death. It was an amazing promise. And the problem is that by the time of Jesus, this promise had gotten shrunk down to a very narrow, political, nationalist promise for Israel only. In other words, instead of a a universal promise for all of the nations, it it had gotten shrunk down to a, a promise of blessing for Israel only. And the temple had become a symbol of that. The temple was a symbol of that. Instead of the temple being a symbol of universal blessing, the temple had become a symbol of ethnocentric nationalism and anti-Roman political resistance. Now, when we come back to what Jesus is doing here at the temple, it starts to take on a different light, right? Because remember, symbols are never just symbols. Most symbols, and especially the ones that are most sacred to us, symbols represent realities. Symbols actually are identity markers. And that's why if somebody attacks a symbol that's sacred to you, it can feel like they're attacking you. It's because symbols are identity markers. The problem with Israel is that their symbols had gotten twisted because their identities had gotten twisted. Not only had they forgotten the the purpose of the temple to be the place of God's presence, they had forgotten the other purpose of the temple. Remember, we've just said the purpose of the temple is to be a place of welcoming all of the nations back into the presence of God. And we also saw that the Holy of Holies, that cube in the middle of the temple, was really like a renewed Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was the presence of God. The purpose of the temple is to be a place of God's presence. But the only way the temple could be the place of God's presence is because the temple was also the place of sacrifice. Because if we go back to the story, remember that not only was there the Garden of Eden, that's the presence of God, but in chapter 3, the first human beings rebelled against God and they were exiled out of the Garden. They were exiled out of God's presence, away from God's presence. And at the end of chapter 3, it says that God put a flaming sword flashing every which way to guard the entrance back into the Garden of Eden. You know what that sword represents? Like we said, symbols are never just symbols. That sword represents that there's been a relational cutoff with God. And the only way back into the garden, the only way back into the presence of God is to deal with the cutoff. And every single one of us here, we know exactly what that means. Because in your own relationships, have you ever had somebody hurt you? And I mean, really hurt you. But then they come back and they pretend like nothing happened. They just come waltzing into your life like, hey, what's up? And you're like, what do you mean, hey? There's no hey. You know what you did. And I know that you know what you did. And we both know that there is no hey until we deal with the cutoff. Right? Friends, don't you realize that if that's true in our relationship with God, how much more true is that in our, if that's true in our relationship with other people, how much more true is that in our relationship with God? 
Our relationship with God is cut off. Why? Because we rooted our identities in something other than God. Just like the first human beings, just like Israel, we have rooted our identities in something other than God. We root our identities in things like success and achievements or sexuality or race or gender or social activism or politics or even religious activity. We root our identities in something other than God. And whenever we do that, no matter how good those things are, and all those things I mentioned are really, really good things, but no matter how good they are, none of those things are God. And if we root our identity in them, it destroys us. It destroys us. So for instance, I read a fascinating article last summer by Tim Keller. He's a pastor and writer in New York City. And in the article, he's talking about... um, some research, sociological research, that had been done recently um, researching social media and activity on social media. And the question is, why, um, why is social media so polarizing and divisive? One of the common answers that is that, well, it's because of echo chambers. Echo chambers is where you're only listening to people that agree with you and only reading the opinions of people who believe the same thing that you do. And that's why there's so much polarization and division on social media. And Tim Keller points out that there's a lot of the sociological research is is pointing out that that's not actually the case. He, He summarizes the research and he says this, people who regularly listened to the opposite opinions did not adjust their views and become more balanced. Why? Because for many people, social media has become a place where they are curating a self. And therefore, they see opposing views as attacks on their identity. In other words, when we're arguing about politics, a lot of times it's not really about politics. It's about identity formation. Why is it that we have such a sense of alienation in this world? Why is it that so often we feel so uncomfortable in our own skin? Such a sense of of like feeling alone in this world, so cut off from other people and so cut off from the world around us. Haven't you ever felt that? Why do we feel that? It's because we're cut off from God. And the reason we're cut off from God is because we've rooted our identity in something other than God. And now we go back to what Jesus is doing in the temple and all of a sudden, are you starting to see it in a different light? You know what Jesus is doing here? I mean, is he condemning injustice and oppression? Absolutely he is. He's calling down judgment on those things. But even more than that, Jesus is calling down judgment on the source of all the injustice and oppression in this world, rooting our identity in something other than God. Because where does all the injustice and the oppression in in this world come from? You know what? Jesus is not saying that the religious leaders shouldn't resist political oppression. He's saying they shouldn't root their identity in it because the more they root their identity in it, the more it destroys them, the more it turns them into oppressors, the more it turns them into the very thing they're fighting against. It destroys them. How does that get healed? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen the problem of the temple, that Israel had forgotten its mission to be a light to the nations. The reason is because they had forgotten the purpose of the temple. That not only is the temple the place of God's presence, it's also the place of sacrifice. It's the way that the sword gets healed, the cutoff gets healed. But how does that happen? Well, that leads to our last point, the parable of the tree. 
Because remember, now we can go back to the beginning of the story. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he sees this tree, and he's, he's looking for fruit, but when he doesn't find any fruit, he curses the tree. And it ends up saying that when the disciples came back later, they all saw the fig tree withered from the roots. What a sad picture. And again, a lot of people have gotten really upset with Jesus about this. It's like, what, did Jesus wake up on the wrong side of the bed that morning? Is Jesus hangry? He sees this poor fig tree in a state of attrition and he just blasts the thing? What's going on with this? Well, in order to understand, there's actually a couple of things um, that are key here. And the first is this. We have to pay attention to the way that Mark, the, the gospel writer here, to pay attention to the way he's telling the story. If you look at it from a literary point of view, notice the passage begins with the fig tree, and then it goes on to talk about Jesus' action in the temple, but then it comes back to the fig tree. The fig tree, this whole passage is a sandwich. The fig tree is like the bread, and the temple is in the middle. That means that these two stories go together, and they're showing us something more important. They're showing us a deeper message. The other thing to keep in mind is that in the Bible, and everybody in the ancient world, or at least that was an ancient Jewish person, would have known this, that in the Bible, a fig tree is a symbol for Israel. And especially, the fig tree is a symbol for Israel's mission to be a light to the nations. So for instance, in Jeremiah chapter 8, um, God is talking about Israel, and he says, when I would gather them, says the Lord, there are no figs on the fig tree, even the leaves are withered. God is looking for fruit from his people, but instead all he finds are leaves. Now, when we look at Jesus here with this fig tree, do you see something else entirely different is going on, right? This casts things in a very different light. Because especially, you remember how, um, how Jesus was very famous for telling parables? In this passage, Jesus isn't telling a parable. He's enacting a parable. And the point is very simple. Jesus comes looking for fruit. But when he comes to the tree, instead of finding fruit, it says that when he reached it, he found what? Nothing but leaves. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Friends, the problem with the tree is the problem with Israel, is the problem with you and the problem with me. We're all leaves, but no fruit. And, and here's the thing, you know, we can really make a good show of it in this world. We can be very leafy in the world, right? I mean, we can make a good show. We can be so leafy, and those leaves can really, all our success and our achievements and our accomplishments and our busyness and our activity and our performance and our activism and our religious duties and all of that stuff can really impress people, whether it's in school or the workplace or athletic events or social media or even here at church. All our leafiness can be very impressive, but the problem is, how does all of that make you feel? withered from the roots, right? The problem is that, that anytime we root our identity in something other than God, no matter how leafy it looks, no matter how good it looks, that instead of actually giving us life, it actually sucks life out of us. It destroys us. And yet, here's the thing. Human beings can't live without a healthy, secure sense of identity. As human beings, we're created for that. 
And so throughout history, human beings have always had different ways of doing identity formation. So for instance, traditional cultures for centuries, the way you got an identity was your family or, or your society, it handed you a role, and, and the way you got a healthy identity was by doing your duty and fulfilling that role. Now, in our modern culture, we do it differently. The way we get an identity is we look inside, we listen to our inner voice, and we follow our heart wherever it leads us, regardless of what any voice outside of us might say. The only voice that matters in our culture is your own inner voice. You know what that is? In our culture, that's called authenticity. And in our culture, authenticity reigns. In our culture, the, the, the greatest failure, the greatest tragedy is that we would fail to be our authentic selves. That's the greatest tragedy in our culture. But here's the thing. You, you know what that means? To use the language of our culture, um, to, to be authentic. And by the way, authenticity can, can take narcissistic, self-centered forms. I mean, that's that's true, and we see that. That means that, that the most important thing is to do whatever makes you feel good, regardless of how it affects other people, because the most important thing is to be true to yourself. You do you. You do your thing. you got to be true to yourself, regardless of how it affects other people. So there are distorted forms of authenticity, like a tree that's all leaves and no fruit. Because if we use the language of our culture and we look at the tree in this parable, this tree is failing to be its authentic self because it's not being the tree that it's meant to be. Which, if you think about it, also means that there is a very real, genuine kind of authenticity that God actually does want for you. Here's the question. What is real authenticity? Well, which voice gets to define you? Traditional culture says it's the voice of society. Our culture says, no, it's our inner voice. Jesus says it's neither of those. The only voice that gets to define you and tell you who you are, who you're meant to be, and what you're meant to do, the only voice that gets to define you is the voice of God. The problem is, as we've just seen, that we're cut off from that voice because we're cut off from God. How does that get healed? The parable of the tree is showing us. Jesus comes to the tree. He doesn't find any fruit, and so he curses it. And so when all the disciples come back later, Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Here's what this means. Israel is the fig tree, right? And if Israel fails to be what it's meant to be and fails to do what it's meant to do, then Israel is under a curse. They have to go under the sword. They have to deal with the cutoff. They're under a curse as a result of that. And, and what's going on here now is that not only is Jesus exposing the true nature of the thing that's destroying us, he's also pointing to the solution because Jesus is the true fig tree because Jesus is the one who came to be what Israel was meant to be and to do what Israel was meant to do. In fact, Jesus is the true temple. Explicitly, we're told that in the Gospels. In, in the Gospel of John's version of this story, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And everybody's confused there. But then the, John, the Gospel writer, says, well, actually, Jesus was speaking about his body. Jesus is saying, I am the true temple. 
I am the one who came to be what Israel was meant to be, to do what Israel was meant to do. But I also am the one who came to take the curse and go under the sword in order to make atonement for Israel and bring everyone back into the presence of God. Jesus is the true temple. He is the true fig tree. On the cross, Jesus suffered the curse. All of the sword came down on him. All of the judgment came down on him. He is the true temple because not only is he the presence of God in this world, he's also the sacrifice. He's the, the one who took the curse and went under the sword for us. In fact, in Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Friends, Jesus was withered to the roots on the tree of the cross, taking the curse we deserve so that we could be lifted up to the throne of God in honor and glory, receiving all of the blessing that Jesus deserves. You know what that means for us? What voice defines you? It's not the voice of the culture. It's not even your own inner voice. The only voice that can really define you is the voice of God. And friends, the cross is his final word on you. Because the cross says that no matter what you've done, no matter how miserably you failed, or no matter how leafy you might be, the only thing that defines you is the love of Jesus for you on the cross. That is an identity that is secure. That is an identity that nothing can touch. It can never be taken away from you because it doesn't depend on you or anyone else. It only depends on what Jesus has done for you on the cross. So friends, if the more that identity defines you, the more that voice defines you, the more you will be able to move out into the world to follow Jesus and to take up that mission to be a light to the nations, to welcome people back into the presence of God, even people that you might call enemies. So that instead of calling down judgment on them, you would long for their redemption. That's what Martin Luther King did. And the only reason he could do it was because he had an identity that was rooted in Jesus. Do you listen to the voice of Jesus defining you on the cross? Take up that mission, let him define you, and then follow him out into the world to be a light to the nations, to be a light to all the people who are still cut off from God but are longing for renewal, longing to be welcomed back in, suffering from that sense of alienation, and welcome them back in to the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning um, that from day one, your vision for this world, your vision for us is that you don't want to just be the God of one special superior group of people. You want to be the God of all peoples. You've created all people. You love all people. And so we pray this morning that, Father, even as we have rooted our identities in so many things apart from you, no matter how good they are, Lord, none of them are you and none of them can really define us. Instead, they will destroy us. So we pray this morning that you will help us to look to Jesus more and more on the cross, taking the curse that we deserve so that we could receive all the blessings that he deserved. And Father, the more we let the work and the love of Jesus for us on the cross define us, Father, we pray that you would help us more and more to follow our Savior Jesus out into the world and to follow him in his mission to bring all the nations back to God. For we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.